I want to tell you about an event we're hosting before we begin. For those of you in Seattle, we are hosting a relaunch party for The Appetite at Gibran, a boutique on Finney Ridge in Seattle. Join us Friday, November 16th from 4 to 8 for drinks, food, shopping, and talking with us, the Appetite crew, at this local shop owned by formal NFL player Gibran Hamden. The event will be a fundraiser for Elizabeth Ayuku's film, Me Little Me, currently being filmed, about the myths surrounding who suffers from eating disorders. Learn more on our website, opalfoodandbody.com events, and all over our social media at Opal Food and Body, both Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast all about food, body, sport, and mental health. Brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment program in Seattle, Washington. This podcast is all about bringing the themes of our work as clinicians into a wider conversation. Today, we've got the honor of having licensed marriage and family therapist Arlene Thomas here. Arlene is actually a colleague and old friend of Kara's. So today we've got Kara Bazzi and myself interviewing Arlene in the studio, joining us in the conversation around grief. In our last episode, we had a bit more of a roundtable talking about processes of grief and how to understand it within the eating disorder world. But today, Arlene's going to be telling us about her story of profound loss and how she has integrated her own experiences into her work as a therapist. I'm Kara Bozzi. I'm the clinical director at Opal, and I'm very happy to be bringing my friend on the episode this morning, Arlene Thomas, who's also a therapist. Uh, Arlene and I met in graduate school, and we started school 2002 to 2004, so we've been friends for a long time. And I really wanted to bring her into this conversation because of her powerful story around grief. Hi, I'm Arlene Thomas, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist um, practicing in Redmond, Washington, so on the east side of Seattle. like Kara said, I've been in the field of therapy for about 14 years, um, and I see a lot of people around issues of grief and loss, among other things. Thank you, Arlene. It's so good to have you here. Thanks. So I'd love to just get a sense of kind of what what brings you into this conversation in particular, which I know is particularly your story. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about kind of who you are in the realms of grief. Yeah, so when I was um, starting to think about a career in marriage family therapy, I didn't necessarily know what specific direction it was going to take me. Um, But during the course of specifically my graduate school experience, so I was in my mid-20s, and so starting during at the beginning of graduate school and then about three and a half years later, um, so within a three and a half year period of time, I had four major losses Um, in my life. Um, When I started graduate school, my mom um, had previously been diagnosed with cancer um, and was at sort of the tail end of her life and her fight with that. So um, actually, within four weeks of starting graduate school, um, she ended up passing away from cancer. During that time, my dad also had a diagnosis of cancer. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So during that time, we knew he was sick. He was getting treatment for that still. But um, right after or quickly after my mom passed away, he 
uh, he kind of moved on emotionally. Um, and he got married pretty quickly after that. So during that phase of time, I, it's almost like I lost him emotionally um, and sort of had just that loss of relationship with him. At the end of graduate school, so about a year and a half after my mom had died, he quickly and unexpectedly passed away um, before I got the chance for any kind of emotional closure with him. So it's almost like I lost him emotionally, then I lost him physically. And with that, at the time, it felt like I lost any chance of having closure. Uh, when my dad died, um, I he didn't know, and um, almost nobody knew, but I was very newly pregnant. Um, so even at his um, funeral, I had the sense of saying goodbye to one generation, but there was still sort of a sense of hope mm. for another. Um, so it was with a lot of mixed emotions kind of that, during that season of my life. And this was the first time you were pregnant? Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was very well thought out. My husband and I wanted to be married five years, like be done with graduate school. So we had like, like a sense of kind of control of life and um, how we wanted our lives to be and kind of what those dreams were going to look like. Um, so November after my dad died. Um, so this was, you know, seven, eight months later, we were ending a healthy pregnancy. Um, everything was looking great. Um, our son Micah was born and he was um, healthy, happy, adorable. <laughs> and um, we took him home from the hospital. So clean bill of health, nothing was wrong. And that first night at home, um, he died unexpectedly from sudden infant death syndrome. So just a shocking loss for us. Wow. Mm -hmm. I'm going to blow my nose. Yeah. <laughs> See, this is part, like, part of what I learned in grief is to, like, you can blow your nose in front of other people. <laughs> <laughs> it's necessary to move forward with oh the next thing. God. Yeah. So after a lot the losses of both my mom and dad, I felt like um, I kind of knew how to do grief. And I was a therapist at that time. Um, so I really knew how to do grief. <laughs> Will you tell me what that means? Um, I knew the importance of processing emotion along the way and creating room and space and permission to just feel the feelings. Um, and I knew the value of working through that rather than trying to rush the process mm -hmm. or um, ignore it. So, and even I remember, um, so after someone dies and you go to a funeral home, like you're given this, um, or at least the, the ones that we went to, we were given like these black notebooks mm. with like estate planning stuff and just kind of what to expect in the process. And I remember at one time, like we were moving and it was like, I already have two of these. Wow. So it's almost like the, even the physical representation of like, I've already gone through this. Um, so yeah, so I, I knew how to do grief, but this felt just totally different. Um, so some of the things that were sort of coping tools before just felt like um, they weren't available to me anymore. So things like 
um, making meaning from loss. Um, at the time, it just felt too fresh and any meeting that was made wouldn't have been worth the pain of it. Um, my personal faith perspective was something that helped me through those other losses. Um, and for a time, for a long time, that just felt again, like it was a tool that I couldn't use on this one. So, um, so I felt a real loss of dreams, a loss of an ability to hope in the future because hope makes you vulnerable and you're just vulnerable for more loss if you hope. And so, there had been so much hope already mm -hmm. with, with Micah. Yeah. So many specific dreams around, um, around him and his life, which seemed like safe dreams to have. Yeah. So a few months after we lost Micah, we knew that we wanted to still be parents. And I always felt like there was two holes lost. Um, left after we lost him. One was the loss of him specifically. And then the other was a loss of wanting that desire to be parents. Mm -hmm. So we decided to start trying again, which was very scary for us. Um, and a few months later, we found out we were pregnant, which we were cautiously optimistic about. It did provide some sense of, okay, there is some good here. Um, nine weeks into that pregnancy, we went in for a routine ultrasound, or I guess not necessarily routine, it was early. Um, and after previously hearing a heartbeat, um, there was no heartbeat at the, in that ultrasound. So we knew um, we were in the midst of losing this baby too. And that experience was just, I became numb. And that was almost like a just just a desperate, like despair experience for, for both my husband and I. The ways that I had grieved previously with kind of that intentionality and uh, I, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what I should do. I know what's helpful to do in terms of grief. Um, by the time we had that loss, it just felt numb to me. And we later found out because of um, testing um, that, that baby was a little girl who we decided to name Morgan. So, and it's always in this point of my sharing my grief story that I feel like, gosh, am I overwhelming other people? Mm. Not only is it, is there a sense of it's still overwhelming to speak it all out loud in one segment of time. For you, for you, it yes. feels like a lot. Yeah, because it is that recognition of like, oh my gosh, like that was, that would that was a lot, yeah. <laughs> to say the least. And this is all within like four or five years, you mm -hmm. said? Yeah, three and a half years. Oh, my God. Yeah. And all in my mid-20s. So, um, so I didn't have a lot of people around me who had deaths in their family, let alone kind of the magnitude of those deaths. And each of them were so different. I felt like with my mom, there was... Um, there's a slow goodbye with her um, and the ability to kind of grieve along the way mm -hmm. um, and say goodbye along the way. And in a weird sense, when she did die, there was a sense of relief. And I remember feeling so bad about having that relief of just knowing she wasn't suffering anymore. 
knowing kind of how the story ended because there was a season of time when I didn't know when I was going to get the next phone call that she was worse. I didn't know when she was going to take a dip. I didn't know, you know, just the next bad news that was going to happen. And I actually remember going back to, so that was at the beginning of my grad school experience. I went, went back to school sometime later and um, one of our professors actually was just kind of checking in with me and he asked, um, is there a sense of relief? And I remember just feeling relieved that he even gave permission for that feeling. Yeah, that's not something that I think people feel like they're allowed to feel totally, when they're yeah. experiencing something so huge and yeah. horrible. Yeah. Yeah. So with my mom, there was this gradual sense of goodbye and grief. With my dad, it, it at the time, it felt like a with the emotional loss, like at the time, it felt like a chosen loss, like something that could have been avoided. And, you know, I'm 15 years out from that experience. And now I can definitely have more grace and understanding of potentially what his experience was like. And I think because of his own family of origin experiences, as well as his cultural upbringing, we, I'm, both my parents were Puerto Rican and not only being Puerto Rican, but being a Puerto Rican man, um, and also just different family like of origin experience for experiences for him. I don't think he had the tools to know how to grieve. So, yeah, so people often talk about the different stages of grief. And for me, I mean, those were definitely prevalent, but I also think about just the different experiences of grief and how each of them them touched on different types of losses. I remember, Arlene, specifically when, as as your friend, being your friend at the time of of Micah's loss and the miscarriage, I remember... um, you specifically saying like, I want people to ask me questions, like, Mm -hmm. because I think there was so many people that didn't know how to engage you or didn't know how to talk about it. And, um, I mean, I'm always going to remember you saying like that. I I want that. I want people to ask. Yeah. Um, And that felt like something, you know, that we could respond to as your friend of just moving towards you. Yeah. And all of it. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely, um, what felt like secondary losses with relationships with people who um, maybe didn't know um, what to say, how to say it. But then also with people who I feel like in order to engage from a place of any kind of empathy, like you have to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And I felt like for some people, for whatever reason, and again, hindsight now, uh, for whatever reason, it was they weren't able to. So whether that's past experiences for themselves, um, kind of an, maybe an inability to integrate their worldview into the reality that these kinds of losses and this magnitude of loss could happen. But yeah, for whatever reason, there there were these secondary losses of relationships where people weren't able to engage in that. Do which you, is really sad. Really yeah, hard. it's really sad. Do you remember what kinds of questions you would have wanted people to ask? I think, I don't know that there were specific questions that I would have wanted people to ask as much as sort of a stance of just being open to listen and be present. Honestly, in the darkness rather than trying to find meaning too quickly. Yeah. Or find hope too quickly. 
And I think the idea that we have sympathy cards rather than empathy cards. Yeah. Like, <laughs> wow. Like sympathy. I, I will, from a distance, say, oh, that sucks to be you. But I, you know, rather than the empathy of, gosh, let me try to understand what this experience was like for you. And let me fumble around and ask for forgiveness if I have offended you. But like, let me at least engage in the conversation rather than kind of create that distance. Yeah. And as you began fumbling yourself through mm-hmm. it, in retrospect, can you see sort of what and how that wound up looking? I think I got to a place, gosh, it was small, small steps along the way. Um, I mean, because eventually I did start hoping again in small doses. Um, I do actually have two healthy daughters now. Um, and the process of even getting to the idea of trying to have children again was terrifying. Um, but I mean, ultimately, I, I think I, I knew I wanted to have hope again, but it was just too scary to hold that at the beginning, at least in broad chunks. Broad chunks is not a word. Um, but in so in small ways, I started hoping again. I think the process of, especially my pregnancy with Macy, since she was um, my first after the miscarriage, I, I was anxiety ridden mm. pretty much the whole time. But I also knew that I wanted to commit to her and I wanted to come in that. I wanted to commit to hope again. Wow. And I think that's part of sort of what ended up being the meaning making for me of in many ways, I felt like I was honoring the lives of my two lost children by making the decision to just be vulnerable and whether or not Macy would have made it here healthily. I wanted to be committed to her. I feel like I am now a different parent because of my experiences with Micah and Morgan. And I feel like I'm honoring them by sort of continuing to live um, and continuing to hope and dream. And, and now in my, in the work that I do, their experiences are so integral to the, to the ways that I sit with other people. And when I sit with other, you know, parents who've lost children or um, other clients who are dealing with grief, I do feel like it's a way of honoring my experiences of all those losses and in a way that that creates meaning for me. It's not worth any of the pain. <laughs> I always joke that if I could have chosen, um, I would way rather be a less empathetic, more naive person and have my kids here. Yeah. Um, but I'm not offered that choice. So since I'm not offered that choice, I do want to honor that experience by recognizing the ways that I've been changed as a person. I think that's so striking because I love how you're not saying in any way, like, I can make meaning out of this. I love that you're refusing to do that, Mm -hmm. Um, that there may be some things that have happened Mm -hmm. because of what's happened, that here you are. Mm -hmm. It's a different reality, but not... Oh, this, this is, is this is why it happened. This is why, or yeah. now I'm able to do this better, or right. anything like that. Which, you know, maybe you are more empathetic, but you want your children, right? Yeah, right. There's a cost to that, right? Yeah, right. 
I'm really touched by hearing you say that, Arlene. Thanks. When you say you're sitting with your clients in a particular way now, yeah, um, tell me about how you even maybe are leading other people through their grief. Yeah. What does that look like tangibly? Um, I think creating the time and space and permission for them to feel whatever they're going to feel and having a sense of um, comfort is the wrong word, but not being uncomfortable with that is maybe a different approach to that. I think also about the idea of hope. Um, and I think that my role as a clinician is to hold on to hope, especially while waiting for my clients to be able to take that hope. So sometimes, many times I'm silently holding on to hope for them and I'm not assigning hope or I'm not saying that I'm not rushing them through the process of holding that hope. I'm just silently holding it for them until they're ready to hold it themselves. And sometimes that takes longer than some people are comfortable with. And sometimes people are able to get there sooner. Um, so last week we talked a lot about uh, ritual on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And Lexi shared a little bit of her story of participating in a, a ritual around grief. Mm -hmm. um, I, in your story, I'm feeling like so drawn to the fact that it just sounded like chaos and that like mm -hmm. having probably some particular ritual was really not something you could focus on. Yeah. Does that feel true? Yeah. It felt like almost like a domino effect. Like the first loss I can kind of make meaning of, we had been losing my mom for years and then it was just whenever I felt like I could sort of gain a little momentum, get my footing again, I was just knocked down again and it felt heavier every time. So, yeah, whenever I felt like I could gain a little bit of stability, it was just ripped again. Yeah, so there wasn't necessarily time or space to kind of create rituals that would even kind of work for the next loss because every loss was different. Mm -hmm. So I think that what ended up kind of helping me and my husband and eventually our family was looking at ways to integrate our stories of losses into our healthy family. Um, and this, this looked many different ways. It continues to look many different ways. Um, when I was pregnant with Micah, we had his room completely decorated. It was ready for him. Um, it was decorated in all baseball caricatures of like, you know, Babe Ruth and just Jackie Robinson and all, all the classic baseball figures. So, um, so th the symbol of a baseball ended up being really meaningful for us. So whenever I saw a baseball itself or it made me think of Micah. So now if you were to come to our house, you would think we love baseball, <laughs> which we do, um, but probably not to the extent that it looks like it. Um, in every family picture that we take, we incorporate a baseball. Wow. I love that. 
Yeah, it's been really meaningful. And now as our girls are getting older, I mean, they they know about Micah. They know why we represent him through baseballs. Um, the people who are close to us know this when they see our family pictures every year. So it's meaningful for us and to kind of people who maybe don't know our story. Again, it probably just looks like, huh, Thomas's love baseball. <laughs> um, so that's one way of just kind of being able to to integrate him into our lives. And there, um, and there are different ways to have just kind of incorporating different celebrations, remembering. The bench in Kirkland. Yeah, yeah. So one of uh, my close friends after, after these series of losses, and especially around Micah, um, she had asked people to, you know, our friends and community of support to, to donate money to with this bench. So we actually, yeah, we have a bench on the, um, or a picnic table on the Kirkland waterfront that has a plaque commemorated to him. So it's for us, it's like almost a, well, it is a different place other than the cemetery where he's buried, where we can go and think of him while doing life too. So, yeah, so one year our family pictures were at this table and we'll go there periodically with our girls and picnic and and think of what could have been. Again, I'm so struck by you, like, incorporating rather than moving through. Yeah. Like, that. I think that there's language in our society to talk about, like, moving forward. Yeah. <laughs> Move forward, you are able to take something in mm-hmm. and process it, mm-hmm. process it as if it's a machine that you, you know, right. ingest and right. you know, it does its work and then you come out yeah. the other side. Yeah. I think about the idea of moving forward without moving on. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, they're slightly different, but yeah, the idea that we can still be healthy, but still hold on to these important stories in our lives as well. Arlene, I know you said like each loss kind of has a different, there's a, it's a different type of loss. Um, is there a different type of incorporation too? Like, I, I guess I haven't asked you before about, is there a way that you incorporate your mom in mm. the day to day? And I don't, I don't think I know that. Yeah. And that's looked different through the mm-hmm. years. Like at first it was more personal. Like when there would just be these moments when I was, you know, driving in my car on the way from graduate school and thinking, gosh, I think she would be proud of me. Mm. Or what would she think? So there's these moments where I'm just kind of drawing her in. Um, Now with my girls, we've started cooking Puerto Rican food together. And when we do this, we will tell stories about her. Um, Yeah, bringing up those memories of her. And thankfully my husband was, we were married when... Um, before she died. So he has a relationship with her as well. So even being able to, for for the both of us to bring in stories of her has been more recently really meaningful to us. Yeah. So I think that that integration does look different for those different Mm -hmm. types of losses. That sounds so important to actually maintain, not just like the, the bringing in of these like these stories or mm-hmm. these parts of you, but also to be able to move forward as an integrated person. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels like some of the subtext there that you're, you're able to uh, not kind of amputate that part of you. Right. That, Which is so important. Yes. Gosh, cause I think that, that would feel again, like a secondary loss. Like I was just leaving these important people and these important stories behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
based off of your experiences, I'd love to hear kind of what what you experienced as maybe even societal pressures mm-hmm. around how to participate or experience your grief. Yeah. Well, I think we touched on one of them a little bit earlier, the idea of trying to jump towards meaning making too quickly in the process. Um, and then one thing that I heard a lot of was people commenting on how strong I was. And I assume that's because I was still living. <laughs> I was yeah. still walking around and breathing and my heart was beating and I was eating and getting out of bed. Um, but many people would say things like, gosh, you're so strong. I'm not sure that I could handle the same thing. And I mean, I again, with hindsight, like I get maybe a little bit of what they were trying to convey, but in some ways it, that made me feel the pressure of that strength um, that I needed to be strong. But it also made me feel like, gosh, I don't have a choice here. Like right. I, yep, my heart keeps beating. <laughs> I got to get up in the morning. So yeah, so that was a message that was kind of difficult for me. Another one was this idea of getting back to normal. People expected, I, I think many people, when they think about healing from grief, whatever that means, um, there's this expectation that oh, once you're back to normal, then you've kind of processed things in a healthy way. But for so many people, after a loss, like we're changed. Yeah, you're a different person. Yeah, yeah. So it's a new normal. That makes me think of what you said about um the secondary losses that happen in relationships during mm-hmm. this period of grief that, you know, maybe it sounds like there would be relationships that change through all that, but then also just ways of being in the world that yeah. change. Yeah. And so you have to kind of grieve a different way of right. the way that you were right. living, the way that you were relating totally. and yeah. who you are mm-hmm. is not the same person that you mm-hmm. have become through all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that, um, I was struck by when you were just talking about the idea of people telling you like, oh, you're so strong. I was just actually feeling physically in my body, like Mm -hmm. the intensity of what it would be like to walk in the world with that much loss happening at the same time. And for people to then say that Mm -hmm. when, I don't know, I, I think about that in a way that would be crushing or your body would feel weak mm-hmm. or your body would feel something. <laughs> so yeah. I want to know kind of what what your body felt like during that time too, if you Gosh, can remember. Yeah. I got physically sick so much during that first year, especially after we lost Micah. Mm-hmm. I had colds once a month. Wow. Um, so there was just like a fatigue. It was like almost like a to the bone fatigue. Um, at the end of days, I would, at the end of every day, um, it was just a feeling of like emotional exhaustion and physical exhaustion as well. And just heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, yeah, like you said, you're, you're dealing, you're, you're in your loss and you're dealing with all the, I just remember all the people, I just, all the people you're having to interact with and kind of all the comments they're making. And, um, I, yeah, I, I remember that being such a big part of your process mm-hmm. was just navigating all of the, the, the social people, dynamics. Yeah, the social dynamics. Yeah. yeah, in some ways it was, um, I remember we, we were living in a small condo in Woodenville and it just felt like such a safe cocoon for us. Um, and so that did become a really safe space, but then I had to eventually you know, go back to work and 
interact with other people and mm-hmm. and and th- that's needed like um but it was that, that was a different experience around that process too that was tiring mm-hmm. um tiring in maybe that's not the right word so that was a part of the process that had its own challenges right, its own part to it yeah, yeah yeah um as well as the benefits of the you know those relationships where it felt like yeah i i can i can be honest here um and you're okay with me being in this dark space and not not jumping to the silver lining and i did have those relationships which were so so meaningful and um so powerful during that time and also i i mean one thing that stands out too from that time is is um i know it probably wasn't always had ease but ben and you your you know your husband ben Mm -hmm. and you really seem to kind of be able to hold each other in that or like have it wasn't you weren't turning against each other like there the process of grief seemed to be whole i don't i don't Mm -hmm. even know what words to put to it Mm -hmm. but I think we allowed for that space for one another mm-hmm. to, yeah, I remember after my mom died, um, I was in, so, you know, this is, I would come home, my husband would just kind of ask how things were and he would just like, let me have 20 minutes to just tell him all the things I was feeling. And he would, uh, he was so great. Like he would just kind of listen and yeah, he didn't have to respond a lot, but just like allow that space. And then after that chunk of time, he'd be like, do you want to watch Friends? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, please. So in some ways, like, allowed this segue of, yeah, I'm going to go here emotionally and just sort of dump, but we're going to have this segue and we're going to have this self-care. Because um, I think for a lot of people, there is this fear of opening up that door because it feels like you're going to be derailed for the rest of the night. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, like, practical things I encourage clients with is kind of allow that space and also think about transitions that you can have yeah. afterwards, like going for a walk, watching something on TV, like um, doing something that just allows for that segue in a healthy way. Yeah, I was going to ask that with the amount that you were feeling in your body, just if your body needed different things during that time. Oh, totally. Yeah. So I really do feel like the extent that we allow ourselves the the experience of our pain on the other end of that, we are allowing for those experiences of joy and those positive emotions too. And I, I, I also, I do remember that too of, I think when you knew someone could hold the the dark, mm-hmm. then you could more easily go into the levity and laugh totally. and have yeah. humor. And for which was needed. Yeah. I mean, and Arlene's really funny and she's got <laughs> lots of good humor. So, it, I mean, it's, yeah, like it, I, it feels like, there yeah there was more of that permission to know that you could do the gamut totally yeah thanks so much for joining us and thanks to jackstraw cultural center for sound engineering to aaron davidson for the appetite's music and to large media stay in touch with what's new on the appetite by subscribing to the podcast on your preferred podcast app if you have the time we'd so appreciate it if you'd leave a review of the podcast This can make it so much easier for others interested in what we're talking about to find access to our podcast. If you have any questions or just want to connect, email us at theappetite at opalfoodandbody.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We'd love to stay in touch. Thanks again for listening and talk to you next time.